0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. Continuing our study in Revelation this morning, studying chapter 6 together. If you're using the few Bibles that are in front of you, you can find it on page 1031, uh, Revelation chapter 6. Now, Revelation 6 begins a new section... In this book, a section uh, that moves us into a series of overlapping and repeating, recapitulating cycles of judgment that all lead up to the final return of Christ. This is a highly symbolic text that we're going to see this morning, but it's also highly pastoral because the goal of this text is to lead us, to help us to stand firm in Christ until he comes again. So it enables us to be faithful as we wait, and that's the point, that's the purpose, and it's helpful to know that up front when we're coming into a text uh, that's as as symbolic as this one. Now, I I think it's always important for us to pray before any text. We always need to ask the Spirit's help when we approach the reading and preaching of the Word, but I feel it, especially this morning, that need, so let's pray together before we hear the Word read, and then preached. Lord God, as we come to you now, we trust the song that we've sung and the prayers that we've prayed and the scriptures that we've already heard. And so within knowing that you desire good fruit from our lives, that you desire steadfastness and wholehearted commitment, we ask that you would bless your word. Bless your word that it would indeed prove rich in fruits that you love. Speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word to us so that we may hear your voice. And through Christ, enable us to see your face. Give us the strength to be steadfast. And teach us your will. Through this passage, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, "'Come,' and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "'Come,' and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand.' And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I think this is the point in Revelation that makes us stop and say, what? I mean, we can get on board with kind of a sensory overload vision of heaven uh, because uh, heaven is this kind of glorious supernatural place. We can anticipate that, but this? What What am I supposed to get out of this, uh, you might be wondering. Uh, well, the good thing to remember Is that Revelation helps us interpret itself? Revelation gives us the keys to be able to understand itself. It's helpful along the way. And already in our study of Revelation, we've discovered three keys that can help us understand these six seals that are gradually undone throughout chapter six. First, this is a revelation, like everything in the book, a revelation. And you may remember, a revelation is an unveiling, a a pulling back of the curtain. And so John's vision unmasks the world for us to see it like it really is. And in order to help us kind of make the decision for Christ rather than following the powers of the world, John's vision uses extremely drastic and stark kind of oversized images. Again, to push us towards commitment to Christ. That's the first key. It's it's a revelation. Second, this revelation is meant for the entire church. We've seen that already in chapters 2 and 3. This entire book is addressed both to specific churches in the Roman Empire at that time, but it's also simultaneously addressed to Christians, all Christians, throughout all of history. And so this vision that we have read together in chapter six, it's meant to be meaningful to Christians throughout all time, across the nations and across the generations. So it's a revelation. It's a revelation meant for the entire church. And then the third key is what we saw last week. Last week, we saw the scroll of God uh, taken by the hand of Jesus Christ. And there are seven seals that hold that scroll together. And if you remember, the scroll is God's redemptive purpose that Jesus is executing throughout history. And so these seals hold it all together and are gradually, slowly undone as Christ brings about the saving plans and purposes of God in the world. So this vision seems to say, here's what's going on. While God's plan is being unveiled, this is what you should expect in life as Jesus brings God's purposes to pass. This is what you should expect until Christ comes again. And so it is best if we read all of these cycles of judgment as a kind of thematic and theological experience of world history not a linear prophecy predicting world history. It's not about the last seven years of world history until Jesus comes again. It's not about the ages and stages of world history culminating in that. It is not four literal horsemen that are going to be coming out of the heavens. This, Revelation 6, and the other ones that we're going to encounter throughout Revelation, it is simply what God's people, in fact, experience as they and as we wait for Jesus to bring his saving work to completion. And this is one of the things that I love about Christianity. Christianity is not like one of those pharmaceutical commercials uh, that, that you, you know, you see a guy playing baseball on a crisp, clear beautiful day or a group of women getting together for dinner because, because some miracle drug has restored them to their former way of life, their, their previous levels of health. In these commercials, everything looks great until you reach the end, right? That disclaimer where you hear all about the possible side effects of that miracle drug, and all of a sudden, the rosy picture is not so rosy after all, is it? There's some scary stuff that usually appears in those lists, sometimes as scary, if not more so, than the symptoms that are relayed in the commercial itself, but it's obscured, that's the thing. Because how, how do those disclaimers come about? Is it a long, slowly, clearly articulated list of things that could go wrong? No, not at all, it's, it's quick. Uh, my, my kids and I chuckle about how quick it is. Can someone actually talk that quickly? And if you look at the screen, there's just tiny, tiny little prints about what's going on while you see the baseball game or the dinner party happening all along. The, in these commercials, the negative is downplayed because they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you the positive. And Christianity doesn't do that. In Christianity, there's no fine print. There are no hidden disclaimers along the way. Of course, there's mystery. And this passage preserves some mystery. But God does not hide or obscure reality. He, in fact, unveils it for us To see, and that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 6. This is an unvarnished look at the world as it actually is. And so here is what to expect as you are waiting. First, in spite of the world's sinful chaos, we should expect God to be in control. In spite of the world's sinful chaos, we should expect. God to be in control. That's what the first four seals teach us. The famous four horsemen of the apocalypse symbolize the world thrown into a destructive, chaotic mess because people and nations have indulged in sin. Verse 2, we hear about a rider on a white horse, this rider, corresponds to a stunning victory, but it is not the victory of righteousness. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to encounter Christ, who is riding a white horse. Christ on the white horse comes out to conquer sin, but this rider on a similar white horse comes out to overcome and conquer with violence. Unlike Jesus, this writer, we hear, came out conquering and to conquer, or as the New International Version puts it, he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest, which is, I think, a subtle warning for Christians uh, to be aware of the powers that we celebrate because as 2 corinthians 11:14 tells us even satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so we need to be cautious when we think about this rider on a white horse, he wears a crown. A Roman crown of victory, the Roman laurel wreath showing that he is capable of winning, but hauntingly for Roman citizens at the time He's carrying a bow because the Romans didn't fight with bows. They fought with swords. The enemy tribes around them fought with bows. And so this writer represents the devastation of national warfare as nation invades nation to conquer and to overcome. That alone is a nightmare. But then we hear of verses three and four, a writer on a red horse corresponding to bloodshed. He is given a sword, permitted to take peace away from the world so that people could slay one another. That word slay conveys violence. It's like a a slaughter. It's the same word used throughout chapter 5 to describe Christ as the lamb who was slain. And we know his slaying was horrific because it was through crucifixion. And so this second writer symbolizes humanity's brutality against each other, both in civil war as groups of people slaughter their neighbors, and then more generally the human tendency uh, to harm one another. Then verses five and six, a rider on a black horse corresponding to the fear and dread of scarcity. This rider brings famine. The scales that he holds represent the marketplace where food was weighed out and the accompanying words are terrifying. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. So in those days, a quart of wheat would provide one family with enough bread for one day. And in that time, a denarius was the average wage that a worker could earn in one day. And so in this terrible famine, one day's wage will only buy you one day's worth of food. Barley was less appetizing. It was the food for the poor, so it's cheaper, but it's still grossly inflated. For some reason, the oil and the wine are left alone, maybe showing that the famine is a partial famine, maybe showing uh, that in this particular famine, the rich and powerful of the world are going to hoard these things for themselves. But either way, whatever's going on, we are talking Great Depression levels of scarcity. Uh, there's food available, it just takes everything that you have just to survive for the day. And finally, verses seven and eight, a rider on a pale horse, or more literally, a pale green horse, the sickly color of a rotting corpse. that represents death. And it's fitting, because the rider is death, following, uh, followed by the place of death in that culture, kind of the universal symbol for the place of the dead. And these are given authority in verse 8 to kill a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So these four seals represent humanity at their worst. This is the sinful chaos of the world, inflamed by sin, nation attacks nation, person does violence to person, and the end result is scarcity, famine, vulnerability, and death. And we've seen these four horsemen at work throughout history in the conquest of Rome or the middle passage of slavery, the Rwandan genocide, violence in the Middle East, the everyday acts of cruelty that people inflict on one another, food shortage, hunger, and even death. The world is in chaos because of sin. However, even though we should expect that, we should expect that God has not lost control. In spite of the world's sinful chaos, God is still in control. Each one of these destructive forces operates underneath God's sovereign limitations. The first horseman is given a crown. So the the victory is not his alone. He's not strong enough to accomplish the victory. It's, It's given to him. God Only allows him to have the victory of conquering. The second horseman is given the sword. He doesn't have ultimate authority to remove peace. It's something that God allows for a time. The third horseman doesn't speak at all. It's God who speaks. We hear that the voice comes from the midst of the creatures where God is sitting on the throne, and God sovereignly, specifically says that the famine is going to be limited. It will be bad, but it will not be crushing. And death and Hades are only given authority over a fourth of the earth, not the entire thing. And so as you look out at the world and see the devastation of sin, don't be caught off guard. You should expect this. Sin is wreaking havoc in the world. Expect that, but also don't lose perspective. Evil is not all-powerful. And sin bows to the sovereign hand of the Lord. We should expect God to be in control in spite of the world's sinful chaos. Second, in spite... Of the world's seeming strength, we should expect God to be victorious. In spite of the world's seeming strength, we should expect God to be victorious. That's what the fifth and sixth seals teach us. In verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. And there's that word again, slain. Uh, The brutality of violent slaughter here in the context of cultural opposition and state oppression of the faith. And we heard a little bit about this in chapters 2 and 3. In Pergamum, a local Christian leader had been killed. In Smyrna... A tribulation was coming upon the saints that would give them an opportunity to be faithful unto death. And then in the other cities, specifically Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, Christians were regularly confronted by a strong culture that tempted them to capitulate and to conform their way of life to the pressures of the culture around them because, again, that culture was strong enough To inflict upon them pain, joblessness, loss of social standing, loss of community, in addition to persecution. To these Christians, all of the Christians, reading the book of Revelation for the very first time, Roman culture seemed overwhelmingly strong. And if we're honest, we see that throughout history, There are so many times in church history where the world seems exceedingly strong and Christianity exceedingly weak. Here's an example. In 2022, just a couple years ago, an Australian football team, or soccer team for those of us who are American, so a football team, football club, hired a new chief executive But they let him go after only like 30 hours of him being the chief executive because they found out that this man was a member of an Anglican church that taught traditional Christian ethics about life and about sexuality. That was enough to get him fired. And after he was fired, the executive summed it up like this my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square. And it caused a huge kerfuffle. Uh, Now, later on, uh, the club apologized for uh, the way that it had gone down. And I think they made a donation to an ethics society or something like that. But to... Normal, average Christians watching all of this unfold. Uh, Again, if you're an Australian Christian, you're already a minority. You're watching this unfold in pop culture. It is easy to feel that your faith is weak compared to the the supremacy, the astounding strength of the culture around you. And many of you in this room feel that way too. Uh, I know, because we talk about it. I know that, that many of you feel pressure, cultural pressure, especially on those ethical issues of sexuality and life. In our region, our, and it's not everywhere, uh, but in our region in particular, uh, and in many of the jobs that, that you have to do and the, the neighbors that you love and hang out with, the circles that you're in, uh, many of our views are, are deemed offensive. And so again, there's pressure. There's pressure to accommodate or to kind of sidestep if you're asked about what you think about these things. And so, so that we, if we sidestep, the hope is that we can avoid the social consequences of disagreements. And that's just the easy thing for us to point out. That's like the low-hanging fruit for, uh, for like, conservative Christians in America. Now, now, let's not forget the crushing grasp of consumerism. Uh, that, That is everywhere around us. And it teaches every single one of us that money is the answer to all of our problems. And that job number one in life is maxing out your retirement account and your bank account, regardless of what the Bible says about community and generosity. That is a very hard stream to swim against, isn't it? Where everywhere we go, we're taught that buying things can make you happy. Do you want an identity? Buy it. You want to change your identity? Buy something else. Just buy a new t-shirt, and that'll, that'll take care of you. That will give you what you want. Again, incredibly hard to swim against that tide. The world seems so strong. but The message of Revelation is that appearances are deceiving. The world seems strong, but God is victorious. Yes, the Roman Empire seemed like this unsalable enemy. They couldn't do anything about us. Look at how easily the Romans were able to wipe out those weak, insignificant Christians. But notice, where did those weak, insignificant Christians end up? They ended up underneath the altar of God, The place of refuge and safety and sacrifice. These weren't meaningless deaths of peasants that can just be thrown in a common grave. God saw their deaths as a meaningful sacrifice. It was precious to Him. And so He brings them to the best place they could possibly go, the safest place they could possibly be, the very throne room of God. In the very presence of God, these martyrs are then clothed in white robes of victory, and they're invited to rest. Uh, Meanwhile, here on earth, those who are not citizens of heaven, uh, those who are the dwellers of earth, they tremble. In the sixth seal, everything looks like it's falling apart. There are ominous signs in the heavens. Earthquakes, mountains, and islands are, are, are being shaken and moved from one place to the next, and everyone is terrified. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave And free, those are seven categories. And seven, that that great number in Revelation showing the comprehensive number of unsaved humanity. All of them hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? What a turn of events. The people who appeared to be conquered are actually the conquerors, and those who appeared to be strong are actually weak and vulnerable themselves. And if you paid attention to that list, of the seven categories, five of them specifically highlight those with earthly, privilege, prestige, and strength. And so expect conflict, but expect victory, because God is victorious, and he will keep you safe. There's an excellent scene in Masters of the Universe that illustrates this. He-Man, the fantastic He-Man, has slammed into... a a group of villagers, this incredibly vulnerable group of villagers who is surrounded by a horde of attacking monsters and he shouts out, get to a safe place. And they respond, there is no safe place. And that's when He-Man grins and the audience starts to get excited. Uh, And He-Man says, the safest place is behind me. Let's go. And then this champion races through the battle lines to lead the vulnerable to safety. And it's like that here. The people who mocked God, trusting in their own strength, end up running in fear, while those who trusted in God, even to the point of death, rest securely in his presence. Now, we should be clear about the death part. We can't overlook that detail. God is not obscuring this fact. The martyrs in this passage experienced their vindication after death, likely a painful death. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. That we follow a Lord whose path to victory came through the cross. And this very same Lord tells us that our path to victory will also involve a cross of some sort. And so we should always be leery of leaders, especially Christian leaders who promise us a Christian victory in this life. Especially if there's some hack or a program that you need to buy into. Because it may happen that cultures change. But the point of this text is that we don't need our culture to change in order for us to experience victory. It's nice if it happens, but it's not required. Because it is in spite of the world's seeming strength that God Is victorious. And finally, in spite of the world's ongoing rejection, we should expect God to be patient. In spite of the world's ongoing rejection, we should expect God to be patient. These six seals are bleak. There's a lot of misery here. But do not miss God's gracious restraint in this passage in the first four seals the damage is limited and it's under his authority the fifth seal the martyrs are told to wait and rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete which means that god is going to delay the execution of justice the full vindication of the martyrs until a later time to allow the church to complete her witnessing mission. And then the sixth seal, that terrible sixth seal, it feels like the final judgment. It looks like the final judgment, the earthquake, the sun that's blackened, the moon turned to blood, sky rolled up like a scroll, stars that are are falling. These are Old Testament images conveying the great day of the Lord, that, that great and awesome final judgment day. And that's what the people in this text are experiencing it as. They believe that the final judgment has come, but it hasn't yet. It's not the final judgment yet. In this story, it's only the sixth seal. Not the seventh one. And the implication is that this story is going to go on. It's not over yet. The people aren't killed. They wail for their lives, but they still have their lives. It's their pride that's been crushed. And then, instead of immediately having the seventh seal opened, there's a delay. There's a gracious interlude in chapter 7 that focuses specifically on the gathered church. And and, and then Revelation chapter 7, this vision of the gathered church, actually answers the scared question in chapter 6. Chapter 6, the people are terrified. Who can stand? Chapter 7 answers, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Who can stand? Who can stand when God shows up? Who can stand on the great day of judgment? The saints can. The people who are clothed in Jesus' victory can. And so the drama of this passage points us to a profound gospel truth. God is patient. And the judgments that come on this world are meant to induce salvation, pushing people to trust in God. He is patient in spite of the world's ongoing unbelief. He wants more and more people to be gathered in until that countless number is filled up. And so this is what we can expect as we wait for Christ. In spite of the world's sinful chaos, God is in control. In spite of the world's seeming strength, God is victorious. And in spite of the world's ongoing unbelief, God is patient. And so what should we do with this message? Well, it kind of depends on where you are with the Lord. If you are not a Christian, then Revelation 6 is an invitation to you. God is being patient with you. God is allowing time for you to repent. And so you should consider every single day Uh, that is not the final day of judgment. You should consider it a gift. And so use the time wisely. Seek the Lord. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. If you say that you're a Christian, but you're entrenched in sin and not repentant about it, or your conscience is deeply compromised, like many of the people in chapters 2 and 3, we already heard about them. Uh, if, if that's you, then this passage is a challenge. God wants you to pick a side. He doesn't want you to continue to, to sit on, on the fence. And the options are clear. There are only two kinds of people that you can identify with in this passage. You can only identify with the citizens of heaven who are safe, Or the citizens of the earth who tremble before the Lord in fear. It's it's a very clear option. And hopefully when I put it like that, it's a very clear choice. There's only one right move for you. And that is to, to fully turn to Christ. And so which one of them are you? Which side, so to speak, more accurately categorizes your life right now? Well, in the spirit of Revelation 6, let me just say it's time to make up your mind. And I hope that you commit to Christ. recommit to Christ. Make your life in accord with the, the confession that you have claimed from your mouth. Turn from your sin. Trust anew in Christ Jesus. And if you are a Christian and you're seeking to be faithful to him, uh, seeking to be faithful, not meaning perfect, because none of us are perfect, but you're, you're attempting to live your life in accord with your confession, then this passage is an encouragement. Because it, it is entirely telling you, don't fear. Don't be afraid. You can have confidence. You can have courage in the midst of a hard life. Don't be afraid. When natural disasters and wars Rise up and we see them throughout the world. Don't be afraid because God's in control. The sixth seal talks about the earth being shaken, mountains being moved. But God tells us in Isaiah 54, which we already heard this morning For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. And so, do not fear. Don't be frightened by the world's chaos. And don't be afraid if you are marginalized or rejected or ostracized for your Christian witness. The victory is yours. The white robe is yours. The crown is yours and the place near the altar, is yours. When you are faithful to Jesus in this life, then you get to be with the martyrs in death. That privileged place of safety will be yours when you persevere. Because in Revelation, we'll continue to discover this, in Revelation, all the saints are described as martyrs. That image of martyrdom is the image for the faithful life here. Even if you're not dying for your faith, you're still living for your faith, dying to yourself. And in that way, dying for Christ, you are a conqueror, one who overcomes like they did. So don't be afraid. And don't be afraid when he delays. Like the the saints in verse 10, all of us are going to hit these times in life where we cry out how How long? How long are you going to let sin continue to destroy your world? How long will you let the innocent suffer? How long will you let evil continue to wreak havoc and oppression and injustice reign? How long will you let me suffer? How long until you redeem the ones? that I love. How long? Well, God, here's your prayer. This is the beautiful thing about this passage. God hears your prayer, and his answer is both merciful and tender. He's got a plan. It's a good plan. And he's even working out that plan now, and so rest a little longer. Just, just a little longer, you can rest. Trusting in Jesus. This is what we should expect while we wait. The Christian counselor, Paul Tripp, once wrote a book called, uh, it's about marriage, uh, called What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. Because he knows what the Bible knows, which is that proper expectations help you weather inevitable hardship. Because hardships will come. Hardships come in marriage. Hardships happen in life. But don't let the hard news get you down. Proper expectations actually lead us to have hope. Here's what he says. You can be realistic and hopeful at the very same time. Realistic expectations are not about hope without honesty. And they are not about honesty without hope. Realism is found at the intersection of unabashed honesty and uncompromising hope. And that's what Revelation chapter 6 gives to us. It gives us unabashed honesty and uncompromising hope. Expect that you in this life will encounter chaos, conflict, and unbelief. But, at the very same time, expect that in this life and in the next, God is going to show up with power and grace to sustain you until the end. And so with with these expectations, you can stand firm. Just like Jesus said in John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your confidence, your control, your victory, and your compassion, your compassionate patience with this world. We thank you for this message that is hard but but hopeful and good to us. And we can even see in it your hand of kindness. But that doesn't make it easy. And so, Lord, we, we pray the only prayer that, that we know how to pray, which is just that, how long? How long until you bring these things to pass, Lord? And we take your answer We take it in faith. And so as we move from your word to the table, I pray that you would seal us in your perspective on the world so that when hardship comes up, we were taught to expect it. But we pray that you would be with us so that we would feel your hand because you taught us to expect that too. So be true to your promises. Be true to your word and save us to the uttermost, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.